listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. We're continuing uh, our series that we started uh, last week um, called Family Ties. And we're looking at passages from the Old Testament and characters from the Old Testament and the lives they've lived and the experiences they had and the communities they were in. And in particular, the, the practices. You know, what, what did they do in their lives that kind of, um, kind of made them who they were? So last week we looked at um, Elijah and his trip to Mount Horeb, which was a bit of a time of distress, but he was there and he kind of, whether intentionally or not, he found himself experiencing both solitude and experiencing uh, silence. And silence and solitude are a practice that you can put into your life to kind of still yourself, to prep you to kind of hear the voice of God or to sense the presence of God. We, we live lives that are so full and calendars that are so busy that we imagine that we are primarily doers. And certainly doing is something that, we, that makes us who we are. But we are also um, human beings. And as such, there's a certain level of presence and stillness that we need to, to practice and be a part of. Today, uh, we pick up again uh, a story of Elijah. This one comes in 2 Kings. And it's a story of Elijah and his primary protege, Elisha. Um, I know those, those names are pretty similar. Sometimes people get them confused. And by people, I mean me. <laughs> so uh, beginning in 2 Kings chapter 2. Uh, now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elisha said to Elisha, Stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And then picking up in verse 6, Then Elisha said to him, uh, Elijah, excuse me, said to him, Elisha, Stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jordan. But Elisha said, the Lord, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the company of the prophets also went and stood at a distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his mantle and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other, until the two of them crossed on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me what I might do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha says, Please. Let me inherit a double share of your spirit. He responded, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it will be granted. If not, it will not. As they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. Elijah ascended in a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha kept watching and crying out, Father, Father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. When he could no longer see him, he grasped his own clothes and tore them into pieces, or in two pieces. 
He picked up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? When he had struck the water, and the, the water was parted to one side and the other, Elisha went over. I love this story. I love it for a variety of reasons, and part of it is this. Um, when the Old Testament kind of originally was being written and read and, and kind of practiced, uh, this technology that we hold in our hand, that we might call a book, had yet to be invented. Like the idea that you would have leaves of paper and you would write on one side and the other and it would be bound on the end and you could hold so much in a single, you know, easy to hold um, book. That wasn't part of the reality that the ancient people had. Instead, they wrote on scrolls. And scrolls are larger and more cumbersome. So I don't know if any of you have ever seen a Torah scroll, a scroll that holds uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. But a Torah scroll is typically about three feet tall, and it's in two large cylinders that are around eight to ten diameter, uh, inches in diameter. And it would take two hands, and you'd have to kind of hold the bottom and wrap your arm around the side to carry it. And if you laid it down on a table and you started to unroll it, you would note that the, the font size is quite small. So about a 10-point font, kind of in Hebrew, starting on the right and reading to the left. So to have just Genesis to Deuteronomy in your hand would be to hold this kind of jumbo-sized scroll. There wasn't the phenomenon of, of a book, of an ancient codex. It had that type of technology had yet to be developed. So at that time, they would have had a Torah scroll, and then they might have had other scrolls in their midst. So what we call First and Second Kings would have been on a single scroll. It had just been the kings. And then there would have been one for Samuel, and then there'd be one for the Psalms, and then there'd be one for Isaiah, and then there'd be one for Jeremiah, and so on. So Kings wasn't split into two books in the ancient world. It was one. It was just the scroll of Kings. It started with Solomon, and there was a united kingdom, and it kind of ended with the last king of Judah. When after the divided kingdom, in fact, after Judah itself had been destroyed, it ends kind of in a disaster. It's a tragedy. Uh, the king is kind of taken into captivity. The city is destroyed. The temple is laid waste. One of my favorite interpreters of the Old Testament is a guy named Walter Brueggemann. And Brueggemann says this about kings. He says that instead of titling kings, uh, kings, it's just simply the word, that we should have titled it with a question mark on the end. Like, kings? Hmm. Like, hmm. Because it's a story of, of successive failures. So the kings do different things in the way in which we would typically talk about kings in our day, or emperors, or generals, or presidents, or prime ministers, or leaders of any kind, is we know what success looks like, right? Success looks like economic success, or success looks like military success, or success looks like kind of expanding the geography of the nation or the empire, except that the story of the Israelite kings is not that story. Again, what we call First Kings, the Book of Kings, starts with Solomon, and he has a lot of money, and he has a lot of power, 
and he has inherited from his father David a united kingdom. But we know that after Solomon, the kingdom divided. There was a great divorce. Ten tribes kind of went to the northern kingdom called Israel, and two tribes kind of uh, kept the southern kingdom called Judah. And those kingdoms were kind of, there were times of revival perhaps, but they were mostly times in which the people followed after other gods. They kind of worshipped the gods of the Canaanites or the Enamites or the Ammonites. They built other altars. They built other temples. And they just were unfaithful. And eventually, as the story goes, the northern kingdom is destroyed by the Assyrians, what would be modern-day Iraq. And then a few, about 100 or so years later, the Babylonians came, what would be kind of modern-day Iraq and Iran. And they came and kind of destroyed. And so Brueggemann's right. Maybe the best way that we should be titling this book is Kings with a question mark. Kings? Because it's a tragedy. It's a story of failure. But there's an alternative narrative that runs through this story. And it's not the narrative of the kings, but rather it's the narrative of the prophets. And the narrative of prophets is, is not just running counter or counterintuitive to the story of the kings. But if the story of the kings kind of starts high and ends low, the story of the prophets starts low but ends high. Because it's a story of successful succession. It's a story of successful kind of passing on the faith, of kind of maintaining the community. So the, the stories of the prophets, whether it's Samuel or Nathan, or the two main characters in the story of the kings, Elijah and Elisha. So if you're looking at what we call first and second kings, what the ancients would have just called kings, Halfway through the book is the passage that we just read. 2 Kings chapter 2 is halfway through the story. And I think it's not only halfway through the story. I think it's the central point of the story. That is, I think it's the main point of the story. It's the story of one person kind of passing the faith on to another person. It's what happens when the mantle goes from Elijah to Elisha. So... Pay close attention to what was happening in the story. Um, last week, as we looked at, you know, uh, Elijah on Mount Horeb, the next part of that story was that he was supposed to go anoint a couple of different kings, one for the north and one for the south, and he was supposed to anoint his successor, Elisha. But a lot of that kind of didn't happen, right? It didn't get fulfilled in his lifetime. But part of what did happen is that Elisha was anointed. And once Elisha is anointed, this happens three times in this story. Elijah says, all right, uh, you're going to be my successor. You'll be the next uh, prophet of Israel. And apparently, there's not only one prophet, because in this story, it talks about 50 other prophets who had kind of come and watched. I guess they're kind of second tier, maybe B team or the minor leagues. I'm not sure. And so he says to Elisha, okay, so I've got to go to Bethel. Uh, so you stay here. And Elisha's like, no way. As long as you live, I'm going to be with you. And so he follows along, and he's with him. And then it happens again. He's like, I've got to go down to, to Jordan. You stay here. And Elisha's like, no way, no how. I, I'm going to go with you. 
And eventually, Elijah, the older one, says, okay, so uh, what one thing can I do for you before I die? And the younger guy says, look, I want to be like you, like more like you than you're like you. I want, I want your kind of mantle, your, your ministry, your prophetic activity to be on me. And he says, okay, uh, there's just one requirement. You've got to, you've got to be with me. You've, you've got to see when I leave. Now, I have to think what Elisha, the younger guy, thought was, dude, this is what I've been saying this whole time. Like, this whole time, you told me you were going to go somewhere, and I had to stay behind. And I'm like, I don't want to stay behind. And then it happened again, and then it happened again. And now you're saying the only thing I need to do in order to to be like you is to be with you. I already knew that. So the scripture doesn't say that Elisha said, I already knew that. That's me saying it. But reading that story, I have to think, well, obviously Elisha already knew that. That's all he's been asking for. And that's a beautiful part of the story. That there's no substitute for presence. There's no substitute for time. Like we can say, well, we know we need to spend some quality time together. That's not untrue. We need to spend quality time together. But we need to just spend time together. Like, some time is, is better than no time. And there's no substitute for time. There's no substitute for presence. There's a, a popular song that's also somewhat of a tragedy called Cats in the Cradle. We all know it. Yeah, Oof, that's a tough one, right? And parents, you know, they kind of grieve this possible idea. The basic storyline is that uh, this young boy wants to be with his father, but his father's too busy. Yeah, thanks for the ball. Can you teach me how to throw? Well, maybe later. Uh, thanks, thanks for um, dad. You being my dad, can we be together? Well, maybe later. And along the way, there's a refrain where the child says, I'm going to be like you, dad. One day I'm going to be like you. And then, of course, the, the child grows up And he learns to be just like his father. Someone who's too busy to have a relationship. Someone who's too busy to be present. The kid comes home from college and and the dad's so proud of him. And like, look, you've kind of grown into a man. Let's let's spend some time together. He goes, well, actually, I already got plans. So can I just have the keys to the car? And then the the last bit of the song, the last stanza, the son's grown up and has his own kids. And the dad gives him a call and says, hey, any chance we could spend some time together? He goes, oh, dad, you know I love you. But the kids and the job, it's just, I don't have time. And the father says, he's turned out just like me. He's turned out just like me. So we all know that story. And we all somehow perpetuate that story. Even though that's not what we want to be, we find ourselves somehow parenting the way we were parented. We find out some ways that we kind of aren't perhaps as free as we imagine ourselves to be because we've been conditioned to be a certain way. 
Sometimes I, I see my father in myself, sometimes positive things and sometimes negative things. And the older I get, I think some of that stuff was planted in me, but somehow it's time released. Yeah? <laughs> right? So I turned 40 a while back. <laughs> and, and I found myself thinking and behaving in certain ways. Uh, next Sunday, I'll turn 48. And I, and I find myself, again, kind of reflecting on different things. So in the Christian tradition, there is a practice called spiritual friendship. So friendship, we know, it's something that we have. It's something that we share certain things in common, perhaps like four corners. Maybe it's something as trivial as sharing the same favorite color, uh, that starts a relationship, but then it grows as we find out we like to do similar things. We like to go on walks, or we like to read books, or we like to take the same type of vacations. We like to go to the beach, or the mountains, or the theme parks, right? Or there are certain stories that resonate with us, maybe the Star Wars story, or the James Bond, or the Harry Potter. Familiarity is a way in which friendship is built, but it's not the totality of friendship. Friendship rest on something that's much deeper than that. I've been reading a fair amount lately in kind of um, social psychology and kind of the origins of morality. And what Plato and, and Kant and others imagined was that if you knew something, that that would affect your behavior. I think evangelical Christianity is very Platonic and Kantian on this matter. We think that if we teach people what's right, they'll behave in a right way. Now, I don't know how much time you've spent around uh, any adolescents or teenagers, but, the, yeah, thank you, Caroline, it's, it's a joke. Um, but there is no straight line, and it's certainly not a short line, and it is not even straight, just between knowledge and behavior. So we imagine that if we have um, a situation that we deem to be a problem, say, teenage pregnancy, then all we have to do is just educate people about it. So if people know what causes pregnancy, then the number of teenage pregnancy would go down. It doesn't work that way. Because something else is driving us. We, we say of ourselves that we are homo sapiens. That means a person of wisdom. That's what homo sapien means, right? Person of wisdom. But what the uh, sociologist Emil Durkheim said is that we are homo duplex, that we're not just a person of wisdom. We, we are multi-layered. We have basic instincts. We have desires that drive us and that form us and make us. And he wasn't a psychologist, right? He was a sociologist. So he wasn't just thinking in terms of me individually or personally. He was thinking of us collectively. What makes us hold to certain beliefs or values? What makes us hold to certain practices? And this is what spiritual friendship, I think, is all about. It rises us above our basic instinct. It rises us even above our capacity to reason as to what's right or wrong, to a larger collective of the common good. This idea that what I'm a part of is more than me. It's beyond me. There's something that I can connect to that um, is 
us. And there's something about us that's also beyond us. And that something, we believe, in Christianity, and other relig religions have a certain kind of belief in this too, is that the Creator, right, expressed in Christianity in the very person of Jesus, in whom and through whom all things have been made and are sustained, is with us. The gospel passage for today comes from the gospel of, of Luke. Um, this is not on the screen, so you're going to have to uh, just follow along as, as I read. Let me read this to you. When the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, sounds like the Elijah story. When it, when it comes time for him to, about to, to depart, he set his face to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. And on their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But they, the Samaritans, did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, in the past, I've often read that and thought, that's a shame. Jesus was poor. <laughs> yeah. Jesus was homeless. God didn't have any place to sleep. But I think spiritually there's something much more going on there. When the foxes have their burrows, right? The birds have their nest. But the Son of Man doesn't have such a place because the Son of Man is such a place. Jesus is our burrow. He is our nest. He is that central part, that being, that presence that makes us who we are. Jesus says, if two or three are gathered in my name, I am in their midst. What makes a friendship a spiritual friendship is not just that we share in common the same color or that we like to read books or go on walks or that we like to vacation at the same spot. What makes a friendship a spiritual friendship is that at the center of it, there is Christ. That we share in common a relationship with and a knowledge of Jesus the Christ. It makes the relationship deeper. It, it builds the relationship in ways that enables the faith to pass from one to another. Christianity, my friends, is a received religion. It doesn't just float down out of heaven. It has, right, and continues to be God interacting with people, but it is passed kind of from one person to another. From Elijah to Elisha, from Moses to um, Joshua. I almost forgot his name there for a second. From Jesus to his disciples. From Paul to Timothy and Silas. And I have spiritual friends. Many of you I would count as my spiritual friends. But those deep spiritual friendships, right, are the ones that enable the faith to be expanded. Like if we want other people to know the Lord, it can't just be simply about connecting to their heads, telling them a story, 
right? This is what I think Plato got wrong, that if you know what's right, you'll do it. If you know the story, you'll respond correctly. And this is what I think Durkheim got right, that it's not just about kind of knowing and doing. It's about belonging. This is why I think church attendance is so important. It's because when you come, you are a part of something. You, you sing songs with other people. You, you confess and profess the faith with them. You see them. You touch them. If you see me when I go, then it will be given to you. And if you don't see me, then it won't happen. There's no way to have that kind of influence on someone if you're not present. And there's no way for them to have the influence you want them to have on you if you're not present with them. And presence, again, is something that's practiced. Because we have the capacity, unfortunately, to kind of be physically present, but be mentally and spiritually checked out. Which is why the practice from last week about solitude and silence prepares us in ways to be present with others. So that when we are present with them, we're truly present with them, and we're not just present with ourselves, but next to them. This is kind of adolescence. You know, you see two two two-year-olds, they're not really playing with one another. They're just kind of playing next to one another, (laughs) right? They're really just ships passing in the darkness. But here's my concern, is that sometimes, though we are, we're not two, right? We're, We're physically bigger than that. But that sometimes emotionally and psychologically, and I might say even more so spiritually, we're underdeveloped. And I think the way we do that is to to develop these spiritual friendships. And so my instructions for you, it goes in kind of two directions. On the one hand, it's to develop those spiritual friendships with your peers and also with those who are perhaps a bit more senior than you. Folks who have been in the faith, folks who have gone through times of struggle and times of doubt and times of hurt, and they've come through on the other side. Not unscathed, but nevertheless believing. It's who they are, right? But then there's also the responsibility to be that type of spiritual friend for someone else who's coming along the way, right? To be there for them, to be their presence. Paul will say to Timothy, I want you to remember what you have learned and from whom you have learned it. For all scripture is inspired and good for reproof and training and teaching and righteousness. And sometimes we like to lift out that all scripture is inspired passage, right? Because we're platonic. We think if we know what's right, we'll do it. But we're not actually realizing the totality and the complexity of the human soul and body. Right? I want you to remember what you've learned and from whom you have learned it. Well, who would that be? Well, amongst others, it would be Paul. Like Paul had taught Timothy. And also mentioned in that letter that Paul wrote to Timothy is his mom and his grandmom, Lois and Eunice. Now, perhaps you haven't thought much about Lois or Eunice as being a Christian, but Timothy did, Right? And we all have those things, or at least potentially we have those things. We all need those things. It's who we are. The Son of Man doesn't have a burrow or a hole like a fox or a nest like a bird. Because the Son of Man is that for us. And we are to imitate him as his disciples. 
and in some way be that for one another. Again, Paul says this to the Corinthians. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It is how we learn the faith, by doing it together and by watching one another. And this, my friends, is spiritual friendship. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.